Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The deadliest predator in human history weighs in at just over two and a half milligrams. That predator is the mosquito. It's decided fates of empires and nations, forced the trajectory of world's economy, and in short, steered and shaped our history time and again, killing thousands of humans in the process. There's a new book out, The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. The author is uh, Timothy Weingart, who is uh, has a Ph.D. in history from University of Oxford. He's professor of history and political science at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. He has served as an officer in the Canadian and British Armed Forces, and is lectured on C-SPAN, has appeared on television, roundtables, and documentaries. He's internationally published, including four previous books in fields of military history and indigenous uh, studies. Uh, Timothy Weingart, uh, welcome to Access Utah. Thank you for having me. We appreciate you uh, taking the time. This is interesting, uh, very interesting book. Um, how did you get interested in this uh, in this topic? Well, I'd like to say it was just I was lying in bed and I had a, a light bulb go off, but that's not the case. As with most things, it was a, a process, and, and I look at history in a way as a puzzle, and history is continuously changing, and we're finding out new things and adding things, and and so it was a matter of putting puzzle pieces together, and obviously some of my past research for my past books um, was part of was a, were a few pieces. So military history, for example, is one of the things that I've, I've written about, and we know that roughly until the First World War, 60 to 65 percent of deaths on the battlefield were caused by disease and not by any man-made weapons or inventions or the minds of the most brilliant commanders or generals. And some of those diseases were certainly malaria and yellow fever from the mosquito played a huge role. And then within my research and books on indigenous peoples, obviously after Columbus and what they call the Columbian Exchange, which in the centuries following Columbus, the transference and reshuffling of global ecosystems and biology, we know that indigenous peoples across the planet, including the Americas, were... um, were not were um, not immune to these European diseases, and some of those diseases that wreaked havoc in the Americas were mosquito-borne diseases as well. So it was just putting puzzle pieces together, and then slowly, as they added more pieces, a clearer picture emerged from a vast array of sources across a wide academic um, array and fields. And uh, I was reading in your uh, afterward your your acknowledgments. You had an epiphany in the Safeway. At in Grand right. <laughs> that was certainly another piece to the puzzle. My dad's a, a, an emergency physician. He has been for, for over 35 years. So uh, talking to him after my, my last book about ideas, and we kept talking about disease kept coming back, and malaria, and with the resurgence of, uh, and emergence or reemergence of certain mosquito-borne diseases, such as West Nile and Zika, and dengue is making a huge comeback globally. Um, so those kept coming up, and then I, I went grocery shopping at the local Safeway and turned the corner um, and saw this giant billboard for, for Deep Woods Off, uh, you know, may repel the mosquitoes that cause dengue, Zika, West Nile, and that was just another piece of the puzzle, and then that was kind of, all right, let's write this book. So it was a process, and certainly there was many pieces that, that fit into this larger larger puzzle picture. By the way, apropos of nothing... I just like this passage in the, I, I don't know, I think it was in the acknowledgments. Um, you're a professor of history and political science and hockey coach. And you say, hey, uh, that's, it was inevitable. I'm, I'm Canadian. Correct. Um, I'm born and raised in Canada. I moved uh, to Grand Junction about seven years ago um, to be with a, a girl from Grand Junction. She's born and raised here. And, and, and thankfully, she's still my wife. So that's why I'm here. She's, <laughs> she's put up with me. So I give her credit for that, not me. <laughs> and Colorado Mesa has a hockey team. Well, actually, there was no hockey team when I got hired. Oh, I see. Professor. I see. Yeah. There, there wasn't a hockey team, but then I actually started the hockey yeah. program yeah. at the university, and it's done amazingly well. And we're the second most popular sport on campus after football, so it's been an amazing trajectory of the, the hockey program as well. And obviously, that's a, a huge passion of mine being, you know, being Canadian. It's kind of born into me, if you will. Um, so, so back to the mosquito. <laughs> Sorry, I, I derailed <laughs> well, us there, but this just just very interesting to me. Um, so, uh, statistical extrapolation, uh, reading from the book, situates mosquito-inflicted deaths approaching half of all humans who have ever lived. That's a huge impact. 
Yeah, yes, and that's obviously that's an estimate, and that's based on a lot of factors, which I mentioned in the footnote, and that's not, those aren't my numbers. In my research, I kept coming across statistical extrapolations and estimates that, you know, we're saying roughly half of, of all humanity in our existence, uh, the mosquitoes responsible for, for their deaths, and so we think roughly there's been 108 billion people uh, across our homo sapien existence, and that roughly half of those, so 50, 52, 54 billion, uh, the mosquito is responsible for, for their deaths in one way or another. Uh, you're right. Last year, she slaughtered only 830,000 people. And it is always uh, she, right? It's, it's females who, who bite us. Correct. Only females bite. The male's world essentially revolves around nectar and reproduction. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so 830,000 people, uh, put that in perspective for us. And you, you do this, I think in the book, uh, that's, that's, uh, you know, we, we tend to think of, uh, you know, wolves and sharks and, but, but <laughs> they're pikers compared to mosquitoes. Well, I think on average sharks kill about 10 people <laughs> a year. Um, and even humans, the average is roughly, you know, 475,000, 500,000. And we're number two of, unfortunately, killing our own kind. Um, and the mosquito is far and away number one. So, you know, I, I don't have the book, uh, the books here, but um, I think, you know, elephants, there's some of these creatures of Hollywood lore that we're taught to fear from these crazy movies that fall in, you know, around 100 a year, 500 a year, and they don't even come close to matching um, the misery and, and, and suffering and death that the, the mosquito dishes out via her transportation of various pathogens to humans and other animals, too. It's not just humans, and we tend to forget that. For example, uh, canine heartworm, if we, you know, we're dog lovers all over the place. Uh, canine heartworm is uh, caused by the mosquito. So uh, they're, they're inflicting death upon other animals, yeah. Yeah, and with the West Nile, West Nile was introduced to the U.S. through New York City with a big outbreak in 1999, and one of the warning signs that triggered that something was awry or something was amiss was that zoos in the New York City area, Queens, were calling in that their, their birds had mysteriously died in these zoos. And people were calling in that their horses were getting sick. And so it was slowly, and then people obviously too in the New York City area. So it was a combination of things that led to kind of unmasking this, for at least for the United States, this new viral uh, disease of West Nile. I don't want to get into uh, all of that. And of course, history that's fascinating um, that, that uh, the mosquitoes have have been a part of our history. Humans have been at war with mosquitoes since since we came around. Um, before I do that, a couple things. One, the very beginning of the book, you say a swarming, consuming army of 110 trillion enemy uh, mosquitoes patrols every inch of the globe, save Antarctica, Iceland, and the Seychelles. Correct. The mosquito is a universal creature, and there's at any given moment, there's roughly 100 to 110 trillion mosquitoes. And it's important to note here for the listeners is that there's roughly 3,500 mosquito species across the planet. Um, not all of these, in fact, the vast majority, do not vector or transmit diseases. So mosquitoes by themselves, untethered from a pathogen, are harmless. They would still bite because she needs the blood to grow and mature her eggs, but it would be the usual little bit of swelling, irritation, you know, itch and scratch. Um, it's the pathogens that essentially hitch a, a free ride through the mosquito that are the issue. So I, I was fascinated. Um, Antarctica, Iceland, maybe it's too cold. I don't know. Seychelles, though. How did the mosquito never made it to the Seychelles? Um, well, they, they think they're actually, that, that was a, a mistake in the editing. The Seychelles don't have lethal mosquitoes. They think they have mosquitoes, but not ah, an awfully not, not lethal or other ones. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, there's certain things that snuck through, as they do in every book, yeah. and that was, that, was, that was one. So, But Iceland, no, Antarctica, no, and then a couple, you know, very isolated islands in, in the Pacific. And obviously, if there's no creatures for the mosquito to bite, then they can't survive either because they need, they need the blood. So uh, another attraction for Iceland, I guess, uh, 
Um, another, <laughs> another point for the Iceland Tourism Bureau. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so I wonder if I could have you read a passage. Uh, you have your book with you, you say. Uh, this is page seven. Um, and before we get into the effects of the mosquito, I, I was fascinated by how the mosquito bites me. Um, All right. So, I had a eye injury. Let me get my cheaters on here. I had okay. an eye injury the other day. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> All right. I'm ready. Okay. So page seven, just the second paragraph. It's nearing dusk. And then uh, then completing that paragraph over the page. Okay. Uh, it. It is nearing dusk her favorite time to feed. Although you heard her droning arrival, she gently lands on your ankle without detection, as she usually bites close to the ground. It's always a female, by the way. She conducts a tender probing, 10-second reconnaissance, looking for a prime blood vessel. With her backside in the air, she steadies her crosshairs and zeroes in with six sophisticated needles. She inserts two serrated mandible cutting blades, much like an electric carving knife with, with two blades shifting back and forth, and saws into your skin, while two other retractors open a passage for the proboscis, a hypodermic syringe that emerges from its protective sheath. With this draw, she starts to suck three to five milligrams of your blood, immediately excreting its water while condensing its 20% protein content. All the while, a sixth needle is pumping in saliva that contains an anticoagulant, preventing your blood from clotting at the puncture site. This shortens her feeding time, lessening the likelihood that you feel her penetration and splat her across your ankle. Anticoagulant causes an allergic reaction, leaving an itchy bump as her parting gift. The mosquito bite is an intricate and innovative feeding ritual required for reproduction. She needs your blood to grow and mature her eggs. So you go on to talk about some misconceptions. Um, would, uh, tell me a little bit about that. You, you say it is true that uh, mosquitoes searches out type O blood over other types. Yeah, there's some misconceptions about why or who gets bitten <laughs> more than others. Um, some of those myths where, you know, we've heard that blondes and the lighter your hair and the, 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 the lighter the pigmentation in your skin, the more you get bitten. That's not true. Um, but she does, she bites everybody. That's just the, the inherent nature of the little beast. But um, she does play favorites. Unfortunately, roughly 85% of what makes you alluring or less alluring to mosquitoes is pre-hardwired in your genetic circuit board. So, for example, blood type O is their vintage of choice over types A or B or their blend. Um, and, it, and a lot of it depends on the chemicals and bacteria in and on your skin. So lactic acid, for example, um, a person's natural um, emissions of carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide magnetizes mosquitoes. The bacteria on our feet um, are a mosquito aphrodisiac. So there, there's a few things that, you know, in your genetic makeup that, that make you appealing or less appealing to mosquitoes. Now, some of the external factors, um, she hunts by both sight and smell. So bright colors obviously uh, attract mosquitoes. Uh, the carbon dioxide is another one. So if you're exercising, you're, you're huffing and puffing more and drawing in mosquitoes. Uh, and, and we're not sure why this one is, but sh she also has an affinity for beer drinkers. So some of your listeners may not enjoy that fact, but um, that's, uh, you know, the research has shown that she's attracted to beer drinkers, and we're not quite sure why yet. Uh, so what what can we do? What should we do? Get get the spray, I guess? and. Um, I mean, there's certain things that, that may or may not work. I had somebody tell me that they stuff bounty dryer sheets in their pockets, and, and I've never heard that one, or I'd be buying stocks in, you know, <laughs> bounty dryer sheets. Yeah, definitely. Because they'd be a worldwide bestseller. Um, but I think throughout history, if we look, people have tried all sorts of things to avoid mosquitoes or treat their, their diseases. Um, at the end of the day, we can douse ourselves in, in lamp oil and fortify ourselves with tents and screens, but because she, she needs that blood to, to reproduce and carry on her species, um, she'll find any exposed essentially chink in our armor or our Achilles heel, and we've all doused ourselves in deet and missed that one tiny spot, and she always seems to find that. <laughs> mm. And if, if you see those clouds of mosquitoes, that, that is likely reproduction happening. Yeah, so as I said, males, males don't bite. They drink nectar and then help reproduce, obviously. Um, so uh, not just mosquitoes, but insects. Um, the males uh, gather in swarms when they're ready to mate, and they find a prominent feature, and that could be a chimney, 
a telephone pole, an antenna, and oftentimes it's us. So that swarm of bugs circling over your head, you're not paranoid or imagining it that you, you, know, you move and they follow you, uh, take it as a compliment. They're using you as a swarm marker to, to signal females to come that they're, they're ready to, to breed. Hmm. Um, and so the females fly into that swarm and find a mate, do they? Yep, they fly in and find a mate, and, and males will mate frequently during their short life, uh, but females only need to mate once, and they essentially store um, the sperm. It's quite amazing, and to dispense it piecemeal for separate birthings of eggs for as long as that female lives. Hmm. And a, hell, a fairly short lifetime, right? For mosquito? Uh, it depends on the, the species, obviously, and it depends on temperature, and there's obviously other, other factors. But in general, it's, it, it's a few weeks. They can live a couple months, but generally speaking, it, it's a couple weeks. Now, uh, this, uh, this sentence from your introduction, and then I want to go to break and come back and discuss this. You say our history in the world we know or think we know would be completely unrecognizable if there were no mosquito. We might as well live on a foreign planet in a galaxy far, far away. I think we've all fantasized. Life would be so much better without mosquitoes, right? <laughs> and it may not well for the, not for them, but <laughs> I, I suppose for us, yes. Yeah, and it may well be. But you're saying, uh, boy, our history—the world we knew, the world we have—would w- be very, very different. Um, in fact, as different as a foreign planet, a galaxy far, far away. Let's talk about that when we come back, including um, contribution of mosquito to the extinction of dinosaurs, influence and rise and fall of empires, outcome of pivotal wars, and uh, much more. The book is The Mosquito, The Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. Timothy Weingard, the author, is with us. More following this break. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Clayton Long grew up in an isolated Navajo village. Liz Ballinger grew up in Cleveland. Coming from two wildly different worlds, as children, they arrived at a remarkably similar place. Everybody agreed that I would be a sheep herder. Those were my first friends. I had nobody else to talk to except for the sheep. I started climbing trees in the backyard, trying to feed the Blue Jays peanuts and try to learn their songs. And then because it was cold and I needed to put my hands in my pockets, putting the peanuts on my head. Our new series, One Small Step, premieres in September. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking about The Mosquito. The book is The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. Timothy Weingart is the author. You're welcome to join us uh, in this conversation by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. And uh, Timothy Weingart says if uh, some extrapolations, um, mosquitoes have uh, killed half of all humans who have ever lived. Ever lived. That's that's amazing. Um, so uh, I think launching into the discussion, you, you said earlier, Timothy Weingard, uh, the mosquito by itself would be relatively harmless, annoying, because they, they bite us and that, that uh, secretion that the, she leaves behind uh, gives us an allergic reaction. That's why they itch, the little bumps itch. But it's the it's that combination of the disease that's, uh, that's carried by... Uh, uh, the mosquito. Uh, so tell me a little bit about, about that, how, how mosquitoes are, we call it vectors? Yes, a vector and other, uh, other insects as well, the assassin or kissing bug with chagas disease or ticks with Lyme disease. So numerous insects do this. It's just the mosquito has such a wide variety of pathogens that, that hitch a ride with the mosquito with no harm to her. To her. Um, to continue their, their survival and cyclical reproduction and contagion. Um, so in, in the parasite class, it's just malaria, and malaria has shadowed our evolution in Africa and our, our hominid ancestral evolution and our uh, whole existence as homo sapiens. Um, so malaria is the paramount killer. And then in the worm category or 
classification. There's the worms that call uh, filariasis or elephant, uh, elephantiasis, which is the engorgement of, of the limbs, um, which we've seen pictures of, and it's, it's absolutely horrific, and 120 million people a year still contract of filariasis. And the virus category is the biggest one, and this is yellow fever, dengue, Zika, West Nile, uh, chikungunya, Mayaro, and the whole, uh, whole host of other ones in the virus category. And of, of that category, yellow fever is the only one with the vaccine, and it was unearthed in, in the 1930s. But prior to the vaccine, yellow fever was also a paramount killer, especially in um, the, the colonial tropics of, of the Americas and also the southern United States and up the Mississippi River Valley. As far north as Philadelphia had a, 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 a lethal yellow fever epidemic in 1793, so, um, and the other viruses, they still, I mean, can kill, but thankfully they're not as, as prolific at their job as yellow fever. And I guess what you mentioned earlier, you pause and say here that, you know, the mosquito, uh, she's just trying to, and he, trying to survive, right? <laughs> from, from their perspective, and, they have yeah, every right to live, right? Exactly. They, like any other species, we're trying to survive against the mosquito, which is why we try vaccines and new drugs and extermination techniques. And all species on this planet operate in a, you know, interconnected global village ecosystem, I, I suppose. And so she's just doing what's innate, innate to her, which is, oh, I need to breed and, and reproduce and, and have some blood to be able to do that. And it, it bothers her none that she's vectoring this, these diseases because they don't affect her. So in a way, she's blamed for all this destruction, but uh, without her, these diseases can't be vectored and continue their cyclical contagion. So unfortunately, she's vilified because she's the deliverer of these pathogens. So the mosquito uh, has a contribution to the extinction of the dinosaurs? Well, one of the theories that is gaining credence in, in the last decade is that it certainly doesn't displace or, or supplant the, the meteor uh, roughly 65 million years ago. There's so much evidence uh, that that happened, and there was a cataclysmic um, crash off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula. But what they're theorizing is that uh, mosquitoes, sandflies, ticks, uh, that they were infecting dinosaurs with pathogens, malaria, um, leishmaniasis, and that dinosaur species regionally um, were either extinct or endangered um, many dinosaur species by the time the meteor actually crashes into the planet, obviously causing the final destruction in a, a worldwide <laughs> nuclear winter and, and climate change. Hmm. Now, you, you write in the book that um, uh, mosquito, the diseases that they, they carry, has been very influential in, in wars, and therefore the rise and fall of, of, of empires. Uh, how so? What, uh, what effect does that have? So we see this throughout history, and if we look at specifically the rise and fall of the, the Roman Empire. Now, historically, Rome was shielded, uh, surrounding Rome as a huge tract of land that heads south from Rome towards Anzio, um, called the Pontine Marshes. And these Pontine Marshes were a malarial hotbed uh, in antiquity right up until uh, just before the Second World War. Uh, Mussolini actually successfully drains them, and I'll get to that. But, um, so they acted in a sense as a shield from foreign invaders, who were coming to conquer Rome, the Carthaginians, the, the Visigoths, the Huns, the Vandals, they acted as a, essentially a buffer, a malarious buffer for, from outside invasion. But at the same time, it's kind of a Faustian pact. It's a double-edged sword. Well, they helped promote the Roman Empire and Roman expansion and safeguard Rome. Uh, eventually, this endemic malaria from the Pontine Marshes in the city of Rome and, and across Italy, for that matter, uh, it starts to sap and rot and bleed the strength, um, the population strength, the military strength, and the economic strength of Rome itself, thereby helping to facilitate uh, the slow collapse of the, the Roman Empire. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, and uh, so, um, so Mussolini, you mentioned you're going to talk about Mussolini. Oh, okay. So, the, the Pontine Marshes, as I just mentioned, and it's, I mean, Florence Nightingale called them the Valley of the Shadow of Death. 
Hans Christian Andersen mentions them. There's, there's numerous people, um, Shelley, Byron, who, who talk about this, essentially this, this death trap of the Pontine Marshes. So Caesar thought about actually um, draining them prior to his assassination. He never got to carry that out. Uh, Napoleon thought about it. And Mussolini actually finally and successfully and quite remarkably drains these Pontine Marshes um, prior to the Second World War and, and absolutely slashes and reduces malaria rates not only in Rome but in all of Italy. And an interesting story along with this is that, and it's a personal one for my, my wife's family, is that um, when the Allies are pushing up through Italy in, during the Second World War, 1943, uh, from Sicily up, until, up through Italy, 1943-44, Nazi malariologists uh, purposefully reflood the Pontine Marshes as a deliberate act of biological weaponry to introduce or reintroduce malarious mosquitoes, which does occur. And so when the Allies land at, at Anzio in 1944, um, there's a biological weapon essentially waiting for them with these reflooded pontine marshes, and we see Allied soldiers and German soldiers too, on, <laughs> so it backfires a bit, contract malaria, and also it starts to spread drastically throughout the Italian civilian population as well. And my wife's grandfather... Um, he landed at Anzio, and he actually contracted malaria um, at Anzio from this biological weapon. And then later in the war, when he and his unit are liberating um, the Dachau concentration camp outside Munich, he contracts a more um, violent strain of malaria um, at Dachau. And you think, how is that possible in, in Germany? Well, Dachau was the head of the Nazi tropical medicine program, so they were doing horrific experiments on Jewish prisoners with, you know, experimental yellow fever and malaria mosquitoes, and he contracted malaria again at Dachau. And he had no idea. He knew he had had malaria, obviously, but he had no idea how, how it happened until I actually told him personally uh, in the spring of 2017, shortly before he actually died, and kind of pulled the curtains back for him in a way of his own war experiences and how this, this happened. And in his usual stoic manner, when I told him all this, uh, he looked at me and as he's sipping on his after-dinner scotch and very stoically said, well, Tim, that all makes sense. <laughs> and went back to sitting in his, his Archie Bunker chair. So it's quite a... a, a a neat tie-in. Unfortunately, he was very sick, but it's a neat tie-in to the larger picture of mosquito-borne disease, uh, his own personal war story. Stoicism seems to be uh, typical of that generation. Uh, he had a he had a pretty he had a long and pretty tough war, but mm. thankfully he survived, or I wouldn't have met my wife. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, this might be that uh, we're talking about the mosquito. The book is The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. Timothy Weingart, uh, the author, joins us. Uh, what if you tell me about your, is it your great-grandfather? Yeah, so on another personal level, and this is directly my family, um, my great, I'm from Canada originally. I've been in, 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 in Colorado for seven years. My great-grandpa, William, joined the Canadian Army in the First World War at the age of 15, um, dreams of heroism and glory on the Western Front, I suppose, that quickly vanished. But he was uh, shot and gassed in March 1916. And so when he went to the hospital and was treated, they actually sent him, sent him home for being underage, because by this time he was still only 16. And he didn't get all the way back home. He disembarked at Montreal, immediately joined the Canadian Navy, and was off, uh, on a minesweeper off the coast of West Central Africa for the remainder of the war, and that's the ancestral birthplace of, of malaria. So r towards the end of the war, he contracted typhoid malaria and the influenza epidemic that, that is you know, very famous in history all at the same time. And he was roughly you know, 5 foot 10, 175, 180 pounds. And when they were ready to throw him overboard because they couldn't find a pulse, he weighed 97 pounds, and a crewmate saw him blink and saved his life, uh, but his repatriation back to Canada was delayed two years. He spent a year in hospital in, in Freetown, in Sierra Leone, and another year in, in England. So in 1920, two years after the war ends, he's finally allowed or healthy enough to go home. And on the boat ride home to Canada, he noticed a teenage girl getting seasick over the railing and being a, a bit of a 
a wisecracker and obviously a sailor, he cast a few snide, flirting remarks her way. And as my great-grandmother told me many years later, she uh, turned around and gave him a tongue lashing. And the quarreling lovers were married for 67 years. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm here because of his delay in getting back to Canada, meeting her, because partly because of malaria. Yeah, that's a great story. <laughs> um, so uh, tell me uh, why mosquitoes and the diseases they carry, why that has had such an effect on military campaigns. You, uh, I understand it a little better after you, after you explain. You, you say that a, a wounded man is more problematic for it to a, a military commander than a dead man. Well, yeah, I mean, and I don't mean to be glib or flippant, and that's certainly not my intention here, but when you think about it from a military economy standpoint and lives, if you're dead, you're dead. (laughs) If you're wounded, you continue to use resources you need to be taken care of, um, or if you're sick, so wounded or sick, with malaria or yellow fever, you continue to use resources, you continue to need manpower to take care of you, and you also need to be replaced on the line. So it's kind of a double, a double whammy. Um, so malaria or some of these diseases may not kill. Malaria and yellow fever certainly do. But even if they don't kill, it drains the actual available manpower or, or your fighting capacity from your military if everybody is sick. And that's certainly something that General Cornwallis came across, admitted, and faced during the closing years of, of the American Revolution, especially during the siege of Yorktown. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so it had an effect on the American Revolution. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> malaria, we forget that up until just after the Second World War, malaria was in the United States, and it, it is a, one of the shapers of American history during colonial times and into the early um, decades of, of American independence, and up in, including the 1800s. During the Civil War, it plays a part. So we tend to forget because we don't live with it anymore in our own backyard that it was here and it was a pervasive killer and you know nuisance. Um, so originally in the war, um, the British campaigns are fought in the north, which is generally not totally free of, of malaria, but less malaria in the north. But in the final year, year and a half of the war we see General Clinton shift the British grand strategy from the north to a southern campaign. So he dumps Cornwallis' British army, uh, roughly 9,000 men, into the south to, to lead a final campaign. And these men, British soldiers, a lot of them come from northern England and Scotland. So in history we call it being seasoned. They're not seasoned to American malaria. So we see Cornwallis zigzagging across the Carolinas, and he says in his correspondences very clearly that his army is almost wrecked by malaria, and he's trying to escape essentially malaria while dodging uh, the American forces. But it's really malaria when you look on the map, this zigzagging that he's doing. He's trying to find healthy ground, uh, as he says. So he's ordered to hole up in Yorktown uh, against his own better judgment, and he, he kind of protests in, in a in a way, to, to General Clinton and says, I don't think this is a great idea. You've put us in a swamp. But he follows orders like a soldier. And when the Americans and French lay siege to Yorktown, malaria just starts to, to slash and cut into to British fighting capabilities. And in his own correspondence, Cornwallis says that the surrender was ultimately forced not so much by anything the Americans or French did, but because malaria had devoured his soldiers to the point where he only had... 35 to 37 percent of his soldiers healthy enough to stand to post and had no choice but to surrender. So in a way, the mosquito is a, is a founding mother of the United States. Uh, tell me, uh, skipping ahead in American history, uh, Civil War, you, you have a chapter on the Civil War. What, what was the effect of mosquito and, and diseases in the Civil War? Well, the Civil War is a, is a twofold answer, I suppose. Um, the first part is at the beginning of the war, obviously, Lincoln makes it very clear that the his goal is to preserve the Union, including the economic integrity of the Union. Um, so early on in the war, it's supposed to be quick, obviously. The Union's supposed to win, and the war will be over. Uh, after the first battle of Bull Run, we realized very quickly that this isn't going to be a short war. And so in 1862, the Union launches campaigns into 
um, Confederate territory. Now, in the West, they're specifically trying to take the vital and crucial port of Vicksburg along the Mississippi River, and they are rebuffed by mosquito-borne disease. And in the East, at the same time, in 1862, General McClellan's Peninsula Campaign, uh, not too far from Yorktown, he passes right past Yorktown, um, uh, to try to take Richmond is, again, swallowed by um, malaria, so it prolongs the war. And because the war is prolonged, in part by the mosquito, um, Lincoln adds another um, primary war aim to, to the Civil War, which is obviously the abolition of slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation in, a, in January 1863. Now, the second part is that as the Union stranglehold dubbed the Anaconda Plan, which is a blockade of the Confederacy to essentially starve them out of resources, really starts to take effect in the final year, two years of the war, the Confederacy is drastically short of quinine, which is the anti-malarial at the time. And in fact, in the final year of the war, an ounce of quinine cost $600 in the Confederacy uh, through the black market. Now, that's a staggering number, but it shows just how sought after it was, but also the shortages of quinine existing throughout the Confederacy. On the opposite side, the Union is stockpiled with quinine. So what we see in the final year of the war is malaria start to diminish and tap into the combat effectiveness of Confederate forces, where the Union is, uh, by comparison, more safeguarded by their ample supplies of quinine, thereby the mosquito or quinine supplies helping in the Union attain a victory over very beleaguered Confederate forces. Mm, interesting to, to think about these things. Uh, before we go to break, and when we come back from break, I want to uh, kind of bring things uh, forward to this, uh, the, you know, the, the uh, warfare between humans and, and mosquitoes and uh, bring uh, forward to some of the research that's uh, being done uh, now. Um, you say that uh, mosquitoes uh, and diseases borne by mosquitoes were powerful catalysts in the proliferation of Christianity. Oh, well, that goes back again to the, to the Pontine Marshes. So um, Christianity was obviously a slow, a slow process, and it didn't <laughs> happen overnight. It, it didn't take the world by storm, essentially like Islam did by comparison. And even, you know, two, three hundred years after the crucifixion of Jesus, Christians are a minority and a persecuted faith. Um, but early Christians prided themselves, it was a duty of being a Christian to care and help the sick. And they established some of the first true hospitals in these small Christian communities. So surrounding Rome, which was just, you know, endemic malaria and people being sick, Christianity as a remedial faith offered an opportunity for converts to receive care and nursing from, from fellow Christians. So it wasn't so, I, I would never say it was solely just that, but that was certainly a, a catalyst or a part of the eventual um, dominion of Christianity in, in Italy and then spreading into Europe. Let's take another break. When we come back, I uh, want to bring it forward, uh, approaching uh, bringing it a little forward and then approaching uh, near the end of the program the latest research. When we come back, I'd like to have you tell me about uh, sickle cell, which is um, not a good thing to have, right? But originally, you write, uh, it, was, it was a benefit, um, a genetic uh, adaptation. Um, and uh, talk about the latest research uh, following this break. Hey, Lael, what's the deal with appetizers? You know, Jen, appetizers are those tasty little bites that whet your appetite for the main meal. Ah, so it's like our UPR segment, Bread and Butter. Tasty little radio bites about cooking, eating, and all the ingredients in between. We should invite the listeners to brunch. Good idea. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. for Bread and Butter, your locally sourced appetizer to the splendid table. Now there's a satisfying meal and all on Utah Public Radio. UPR is everywhere you are, with classical music programming, news and information, statewide through 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org, and through the new UPR app. UPR is only a push of the button away. 
On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll take you to concert halls, clubs, and festivals around the world to catch live music by some of our favorite international stars, from Zimbabwe's Oliver Mitukudzi to Mexico's Julieta Venegas. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for World Music Live, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking about the mosquito. That's the title of the book. We're talking about the subtitle, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. The author, Timothy Weingard, is with us. So, Timothy Weingard, um, I learned for the book, uh, sickle cell, which is a very problematic um, uh, problem, <laughs> um, was originally a, an advantage in, uh, I guess, the adaptation against malaria. Well, it's, it's, it's a savior and a killer in a way, and it's a very incomplete and imperfect and hasty uh, response of, of natural selection in human beings to fight what, what must have been absolutely cataclysmic rates of malaria in our ancestral birthplace of Africa. So essentially it develops very quickly. Early Bantu farmers start clearing a land, um, jungle forest, to plant yams and, and, and plantains. And when they do this, there's already different uh, human strains of malaria that exist. But when they do this, they come face-to-face with a new and by far the most lethal strain of the five human malarias, which is falciparum malaria. Uh, and, and it starts, obviously, to, to have an effect on this Bantu population because what happens is natural selection supports uh, a genetic modification, if you will, called sickle cell. Now, generally speaking, our red blood cells are donut or, or oval-shaped, and the malaria parasite attaches to these and then invades the inside of the cell to, to eat the hemoglobin. Now, with sickle cell, it's a sickle or crescent-shaped. They can't latch onto the red blood cell. So it's essentially a genetic shield against um, malaria, well, falciparum malaria, which is by far the most lethal of the five strains of human malaria. So... It happens very quickly, but there's also, it's so hasty, it's an imperfect evolutionary response. So if you inherit sickle cell from one parent and not the other parent, that's called sickle cell trait or sometimes sickle cell anemia. And you generally live uh, before modern medicine to the age of 23 on average, 23 years old. Now you survive long enough to procreate and carry on the species, but ultimately, it, is a, it has huge health risks at the same time. Um, so the other is sickle cell disease, which is you inherit sickle cell from both parents, and that's essentially a death sentence. And then the other 25% would inherit no sickle cell and then obviously be susceptible to falciparum malaria, which also has high mortality rates, especially for children under five years old. So... It's a very hasty and imperfect evolutionary response, but what it shows is just how, um, as a survival pressure on our species, malaria must have been uh, when falciparum malaria is unleashed by this early agricultural pursuits in pastoral practices. This is a, a lot of these diseases, an arms race, right? Uh, genetically, uh, humans, you know, will. Uh, there, there come adaptations, uh, genetic adaptations uh, sometimes. Are, are there other examples uh, of adaptations which protect against malaria or other of these diseases? Yeah, and different types of the five malarias, but thalassemia is another one. Duffy antigen, antigen negativity is another one. But, for example, with Duffy antigen negativity, with modern research, with what they're finding is that if you possess this genetic trait, which is a partial shield from malaria, it also can increase your risk of HIV transmission by up to 40%. So all of these malarial shields come with, I suppose, tacked on health consequences. But again, that shows just how hasty they are uh, in the sheer um, capabilities of, of the pressures of, of malaria and malaria death on our, our early human populations and ancestors to have these traits because essentially what it's saying is this is the only way for us to survive and procreate. 
which is quite astounding when you actually sit back or look back and think about that. And now, obviously, these haven't gone away. Um, across the board of all these different types of malarial shields, roughly 10% of the human population today still possesses one of these. Hmm. Yeah, amazing. I want to bring it forward uh, to at least the, the 1950s or so. Um, you have a chapter in the book um, called Silent Springs and Superbugs. And then the you know preceding uh, chapter, this is Anne, she's dying to meet you. You're talking, you, you succeeded in, in uh, making me see DDT in a different light. Uh, Rachel Carson, of course, was inveighing against DDT. I'd forgotten that DDT was an anti-mosquito. Uh, you know, treatment. I want to just read this from the end of that uh, previous chapter. This is page 396. You're quoting Dr. Paul Russell, um, a wartime mosquito crusader. You say man's mastery of malaria. This is, uh, I'll just read this. For the first time, he says, announced in 1955, it was possible to banish malaria completely. The mosquito-killing chemical DDT, synthetic anti-malaria drugs, yellow fever vaccinations appeared to be Unstoppable. We had turned the tide of the battle. Um, so things looked very promising at that point. Yeah, DDT, and I'll have to do this in two sections, if you will. So if we look at DDT and for now uh, dismiss, don't dismiss it, but not talk about the environmental degradation to other animals, and certainly Joni Mitchell, leave me the birds and the bees and the spotted apples. Um, so and to humans as well, obviously, it causes severe health implications or death to other animals and health implications to humans. But if we look at DDT specifically as a mosquito killer, it was an absolute wonder chemical. And the, the disease, mosquito-borne disease rates in the 1950s, which Paul Russell is saying, now he spoke too soon, obviously, um, it's to the point where he's safely, he's an entomologist, and he's safely saying DDT will eliminate malaria from the planet. And it had a huge effect on curbing mosquito-borne disease rates. It was actually unbelievable. And the problem is, is before Rachel Carson publishes her seminal uh, work, Silent Spring, in 1962, which obviously was one of the catalysts for the modern environmental movement, and no doubt had a huge impact about the negative effects of DDT on other animals, including humans, we're already seeing mosquitoes across the planet that have become immune or resistant to DDT. So by the time she publishes Silent Spring, it's already worn out its welcome, and the mosquito has essentially circumvented that frontline weapon uh, against it. Um, so it, it worked for a while in, in an amazing way. But also what people need to understand is in 1946, DDT was made available wholesale to farmers. So across the world, farmers were essentially carpet-bombing the planet with DDT. That's what causes the mosquito resistance and, by and large, the environmental degradation. It's the agricultural, sweeping agricultural use. It's not necessarily DDT's uh, surgical use in indoor residual spraying, specifically against um, mosquitoes that uh, um, vector mosquito-borne disease. So it's a whole spider web, if you will, of different avenues of the success and failure of DDT. So just about three minutes left, uh, what's the latest research? I know the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is taking a lead, right, anti-malaria crusade. Um, what's it, does it look promising? What's the latest research? Well, the latest research that has consumed global media since it was unveiled in 2012 is the CRISPR gene editing technology. And certainly the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation funds research all over the world, uh, the CDC, the World Health Organization, national and international organizations, um, and other NGOs. Uh, long story short, CRISPR, we can intrude on natural selection by being able to cut and paste sections of DNA at will, thereby permanently altering the genome of any animal, whether it be humans or mosquitoes. So from a mosquito front, there's two avenues, and nobody is promoting the extermination of mosquitoes, and they need to make that very clear because of the 3,500 species, the vast majority don't transmit disease. So one avenue would be to CRISPR a mosquito and release them into the wild, thereby only producing infertile uh, um, still 
stillborn or male offspring. So you could potentially wipe out that specific species. Now, the other avenue is to CRISPR a mosquito with a selfish gene or a gene drive that would be passed down its bloodline and its lineage that would simply make that mosquito species harmless by making it incapable of actually vectoring the disease, thereby bringing down the disease itself, but not that mosquito species. And it's quite fascinating research that's being undertaken by uh, mosquito warriors in labs and in the field across the world. Uh, finally, um, has thinking about the mosquito so much, writing a book on mosquitoes, does that change your personal view? Uh, you know, you might go out tonight uh, at dusk <laughs> and, um, and you hear that familiar buzzing coming toward you. What, have your thoughts changed? Uh, I, I write this in the end of the book, and I, I'm, I'm torn because the amount of death and misery and suffering this tiny animal inflicts on humanity is horrible, and it's awful to think about that, um, you know, all across our planet. Um, but, but at the, the other end, uh, she's just trying to do her thing and survive like any other creature on the planet, including ourselves. And I find it fascinating that this animal that we've been at war with across our human existence and has profoundly impacted uh, the course of our, our history, has circumvented every weapon to continue just doing what she does. So there's a sort of res- a backhanded respect, pardon the pun, uh, for this animal, but also at the same time, I-, I think if we can tackle the diseases without tackling the creature, that might be the best of both worlds. Well, it's a fascinating book. It's called The Mosquito, The Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. Uh, Timothy Weingard. Uh, has uh, joined us. He is the author. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you very much. And I hope you'll uh, join us tomorrow. Of course, we have Behind the Headlines uh, from KCBW and uh, UPR. It's uh, uh, News Roundup with Salt Lake Tribune reporters. Uh, Next week, we are uh, talking with uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Richard Russo, author of Empire Falls and other books. His latest book is very interesting, uh, Chances Are, is the title. That and much more coming next week. Thanks for listening today. Utah Public Radio is broadcasting engaging and impactful stories of Utah 24 hours, 7 days a week on the air. But we have a lot more to say and so much more for you to hear. The UPR social media team is bringing you Utah's most important stories right to your feed. Stay up to date and join the discussion by connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Don't forget to use the hashtag IamUPR. Why wait? Pick up your mobile device now and get the most out of Utah Public Radio. And just as always, stay tuned for more on the air from UPR. Everyone has a favorite author, actor, musician, or comedian. At All Things Considered, we don't just bring you the news of the day. We introduce you to the coolest people you thought you knew and learn what really makes them tick. What you hear might just surprise you. Join us every afternoon for All Things Considered from NPR News, conversations that connect. Join us for NPR's All Things Considered weekday afternoons at 3 here on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.